Welcome back to another episode of Not All at Once. I'm Kendall Y. And I'm Jordan Guess. Jordan is calling in from vacation. Jordan, do you want to tell the world where you are or? Sure, sure. It's undisclosed. Okay. <laughs> I will disclose it. We are, um, my wife and I are down here in Cancun, right off the coast of Cancun and uh, on an island called Isla Mujeres. So spending a little time today actually our last full day and we'll fly back tomorrow so and then so, this will become a little bit of a theme for this month and for next month because we're going to be doing a little bit more travel and then towards october we'll be chilling out so oh really where else are you traveling can you tell us yeah we're doing europe starting we'll fly fly over well, I don't know. Some people dispute this. I do consider Iceland part of Europe, um, but we're <laughs> we're flying over to uh, Iceland on the seventeenth of August, and then we won't fly back. I think we yeah we just booked our flights back yesterday. Actually, we're flying back from Barcelona um, on September twentieth. So that whole time we'll be over in Europe. So a little over a month. So we'll mm-hmm. have some interesting locations and hopefully Wi-Fi that's reliable. <laughs> hopefully it cools off for you too. It's like not too hot because they don't have yeah. much air conditioning in Europe. I don't know if you know this. Right. Um, they've, they've got plenty of air conditioning here. And thankfully, because here in Mexico right now, it is ungodly how hot it is. I mean, it just, it's like you can't even stay out in, in the sun the whole day. So mm, it's like dangerously hot. Yeah. And then last night our the power went out for like thankfully it was only out for like 15 seconds and then a generator kicked on. But during those 15 seconds, I was like, oh man, we're gonna have to sleep. And it's mm. in this heat. Because yes. it, it stays hot. Like it's hot and humid all the way, even once the sun's down. It's it's been blowing my mind. So, anyways, it's a tangent. Well, Jordan is committed. So even on, vac- <laughs> even on vacation, he, he podcasts. It's also a little bit earlier oh, yeah. morning for him than where I'm at. Um, his microphone does sound a little off, so apologies for that. Uh, but I think yeah. it's probably good enough. It's a cool. part of the journey, I suppose. Um, okay, so Jordan, since he is on vacation, has been a little out of the loop, so I'm going to lead some of those discussions. I think we're going to talk about the ETH merge as well. Uh, the, sorry, the two things on the agenda. We'll just naturally let the conversation flow. Of course, two things are ETH merge mm-hmm. and what's going on in Taiwan, in China and, and Nancy Pelosi. Cause he asked the, we were talking prior to the recording and his words were as, as Nancy Pelosi still planning on going and I just thought to myself immediately, dude, you are so out of the loop. We got a lot to talk about. <laughs> so, cause she's already been, she's already been there and she's left. Like she's no, she's no longer there. Really? Yeah. Wow. So are we in world war three right now? Um, I mean, <clears throat> get into it. <laughs> yeah, we can, we'll just dive right in. I guess we'll start out with sure. China. I don't know. I mean, I'm just some rando from Kentucky, so I, I've, I'm not privy to any sort of information. But, uh, but, uh, but you could I mean, get Pelosi to come on the podcast this morning. She's... I'm not like some like spy. Like I don't know inside information. <laughs> Although that would be cool. Okay. I think I would. I think I would make a good spy, to be honest. Yeah, I think you would too. You have that you have the look. Mm, I have the mystique. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I don't know what to, I think that these days. So what's go? Where'd she go? No. What day did she go? Was it like late last week? I think she arrived. No, I think she arrived on Tuesday and then I think she left yesterday. I think it was just like a one day thing. It was, um, she went like several places in Southeast Asia. I think she went Singapore, Guam. I think she maybe landed somewhere in the Philippines. Maybe I actually don't know about the Philippines, but 
anyway, she went to a okay. number of places. Um, the uh, and she was the first speech, she was the highest government representative to visit Taiwan since 1999 when the previous speaker of the house or at least a previous speaker of the house uh, Newt Gingrich went so it's been over two decades since somebody mm. of that caliber has uh, gone to Taiwan um, wow and yeah. and I I mean I did hear that there was a lot of people within I think it was within the the administration that were kind of saying to her prior to um, to her going hey maybe not right now you know um, so yeah the but the consensus the consens like she said screw you <laughs> to all those people. yeah what was interesting is that the like the the strategists that I follow were basically all in the same. In, in agreement, they all had the same consensus, which was that this is dumb. She shouldn't be going. Um, mostly, like the argument was was premised on like it's just um, what do they call it? Like it's just all words. Basically, there's no substance. So why would she? Like we're not getting anything out of it. So why would we escalate the situation? And I think that um, yeah, the 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 presidential <clears throat> administration was also of the same opinion as that is my understanding behind closed doors but then publicly pretty much every government official that i saw was in support of it i think it's one of those things which is like you basically have to publicly support it right you don't because it's like an existential threat um kind of in the same right. way that like everybody is in agreement that you know like the first two weeks of COVID, everybody was in agreement. It's like this is like a real problem. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. it sounds like I mean the the Wall Street Journal article that I've got pulled up that was on their front page is um, talking about these. It sounds like the Chinese military reaction and launching live fire drills around Taiwan, um, all in pretty much protest to her visit. So. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like, just like to be the sobering reality is like, none of us know what the, it's all like, if you, you got to talk to the CIA to get the, the real answers, the intelligence community, they know exactly what's going on. Because what, um, yeah. what could have, like, it could be that Pelosi went because things were already really bad. And uh, so really wasn't going to make anything worse because yeah so today starting last night actually china sorry the what's it called the people's liberation army which i just think that name mm. sounds so sinister i'm like <laughs> why do they call it like well, they got to choose better names here um but uh the people's liberation if anyone out there from from the ccp is listening yeah if, if the marketing over. department of the ccp is listening to this episode which i'm sure they're they're artificial intelligences but whether or not it's a human probably yeah but um starting last <laughs> night the i feel like i'm like a reporter here i don't know i'm i just follow twitter so i don't know what do i know i mean it is we we are a news podcast i mean it's normally true. crypto but and we will get into how this has huge ramifications potentially for just all technology but anyways go ahead yeah starting last night china started a i think it's going to be a five day like what do they call it like it's like a exercise a naval exercise yeah. where they functionally blockade taiwan like they basically surround it with their navy and with air force or air power as well and um they're saying it's like a exercise but it's like well we can't send commercial traffic through that so it's functionally a blockade like it is but yeah i, I don't know the all the details there I, I i did see one thing this morning which was a bit disturbing which was that um there was videos of actual ballistic missiles firing from the mainland into yeah into the sea obviously they didn't land on yeah. taiwan they landed in the water Apparently, 
but it's it's just like to show them we can it's just part of the exercise right apparently part yeah. allegedly i heard one report which was that some of the missiles landed in japanese water waters right um mm. so so yeah things are things are heating up for sure um what would how would you feel if you were nancy pelosi and you just potentially started world war three because i feel like it's a lot different story if they were to actually if china were to actually move in on taiwan i feel like we have a lot more there would be so much more pressure on the west to act versus what happened with russia and ukraine you know mm-hmm. oh we would definitely have but to- then i go but then i go back to hong kong and they did the same thing you know they just that was only 2019 that they did the same thing to Hong Kong and really the West didn't do anything. So that's well, kind of the other side of We weren't really in a position to defend Hong Kong. Um, and also Hong Kong, you know, isn't like a, the largest manufacturer of semiconductors in the world. <laughs> yeah. And that, okay. So that's a good segue. Cause that's kind of where all this, I'm sure people, or maybe people were like, this is a show about technology. Like the main piece of, on the technology front, you know, with the semiconductors, all the little chips that go into, my understanding is cars, computers, anything, right? Even, I'm sure uh, ASICs, the mine Bitcoin, use chips that are manufactured in Taiwan. So all of this comes down to like a hardware issue and, um, and that just piles on top of all of our existing, you know, supply chain issues already. So I think that's where this this whole geopolitical conflict could put a huge just damper on economies and on tech. And so all that to say, I think that's why we're focusing on it, just so everyone's clear. Like we're just this isn't well, necessarily there's... turning into a politics show per se. It's just but there are implications. There's major economic implications um, for those reasons that I'm, we're going to talk about those as well. But even from a military strategy perspective, um, if you look at a map <clears throat> of East Asia, you'll mm-hmm. see Japan and then Japan sort of uh, the so- south part of Japan touches South Korea or goes to South Korea. And then you follow, it's a, it's basically a continuous island chain from Japan down mm, to, to the Taiwan. Philippines. No, actually down to the Philippines. And Taiwan is right in the middle of that. Mm, um, okay. So you oh, can I think see. of, it's, I think what it's called is an archipelago, archipelago. It's like an okay. island chain, basically. Like um, you can think of that as like a defense border. Like it's a giant wall, which sort of contains um the chinese superpower so if they if they were to break through taiwan is the is the spot to break through that that wall and so if they were to break through it then they would have access they would have military strategic uh competitiveness in um in a lot of other places so Mm. um but yeah have you so are you familiar with dune the store the book in the movie dune so funny you just brought that up because i just watched that on the plane ride down the movie i haven't read the book but very familiar (laughs) the most recent movie i watched okay so for those who aren't aware or so you're familiar with on dune there's something called spice right spice is the reason why they're all on arrakis arrakis is kind of like this planet that basically um they go in and mine this thing called spice anyway ben hunt ben hunt who's a writer has a piece called taiwan is now arrakis Hmm. and the the point he's trying to make is um taiwan has become a sort of place that is of massive interest to all the superpowers because of the semiconductor manufacturing yeah. So he can so he compares like spice to semiconductors. Semiconductors are kind of like a magical thing if you think about it. Like 
it's the closest thing that humans have to um what do you what do you call it whenever you turn something into gold like miracle what a miracle <laughs> no there's a word for it uh i don't know my brain's not working very well this morning but uh anyway yeah the the semiconductors are the thing here's what i know about the semiconductor industry there's three major manufacturers of semiconductors tsmc which is taiwan semiconductor samsung and then um texas instrument is actually reasonably large people often talk mm-hmm. about the first two that they, they usually don't mention texas instrument but i like to bring up texas instrument because that's an american one okay. um and um semiconductors like so the cutting edge of semiconductors is you'll hear something called five nanometers which means that they're able to place the the semiconductors five nanometers apart which is like insanely small i mean it's like you're getting to the molecular level almost at that at that scale um so like the, the latest iphones have five nanometer chips um sort of like you can think of like tsmc what they're good for is all the cutting edge um chip manufacturing and um samsung sort of like is behind them a little bit so they're not as cutting edge they're not able to make as uh advanced semiconductors um but they still manufacture a good amount and then texas instrument is even behind samsung is my understanding the thing is we don't you don't have to have like five nanometer chips to run a blender like a or a household appliance right you just have to have like a basic uh circuit um so but i don't know i'm rambling the the ts there's one no, more thing no. i want to say which is that the ts tsmc apparently produces some something like 90% of all um used chips so it's a significant share of the overall chip manufacturing industry. Um, I should say too, Samsung primarily, I think their largest manufacturing capacity is in South Korea, which is another ally of ours. Okay. Um, and then... Yeah. That, that's what I had heard too. South Korea was another major exporter of, of these. Yeah, and then there's one more thing too, which is that there is a investment by tsmc to create a fabrication facility like manufacturing plant basically in arizona and um that is underway they have it's like under active construction however it's uh it takes years to to build these things because of the the level of uh advanced technology required to build them one of the like the I've heard it described once how they how they manufacturing these things how they manufacture these things, and they have to use like like these cra- crazy advanced laser systems. Like it's like super super hardcore physics in order to manufacture these things. And one of the main mm-hmm. suppliers of the manufacturing equipment is a. ASM or something. It's a company in the Netherlands, actually. Um, I forget the exact name, but it's a company in the Netherlands. So I find it interesting that this like supply chain, the requirement to build, it's incredibly globalized. Like it's all over the place. And like we're the actually most of the designs <clears throat> come out of United States. So we're actually the primary designer of the chips. Mm. And then we send them to we send the designs to Taiwan to fabricate them and they fabricate them using machinery from the Netherlands. Right. So, wow. Well, actually that's an interesting point. So I'm, so I'd also heard, I'm not totally in the dark, but I'd heard um, on the politics show that shows that I listened to, there was um, some stuff that had passed through Congress. um, And one piece of that was, sorry in last month in july one piece of that was um the chips act of of 2022 
and it was um, enacted to strengthen pretty much the domestic semiconductor manufacturing. I've actually got um, semiconductors.org pulled up. This is pretty interesting. So the modern share of uh, semiconductor manufacturing capacity located in the U.S. has eroded from 37% in 1990 to 12% today. That's pretty crazy. I mean, that's just that goes right in line with all the other stories about manufacturing leaving the states to places where cheap labor is is abundant. But that is pretty insane that we we actually used to almost have 40 percent of the semiconductor manufacturing here versus now. Yeah, so I mean, they, they call it Silicon Valley for a reason, because <laughs> that, that's where that's where the silicon used to be made. Yeah. But at least, I mean, at least we've got to give credit where credit's due. I mean, Congress getting this passed um, to essentially, it is to strengthen the uh, manufacturing, the design and research, and then also to fortify the economy and national security of chip supply chains. So, and also so, for uh, that for is Paul, one also positive. for also for Paul Pelosi to make a, uh, <laughs> a good uh, okay, careful. Program. Careful, Nancy Pelosi. She <laughs> sold her Nvidia at a at a major loss. <laughs> you know, I, was I will never get over that that press conference, bro. And she, when <laughs> someone asked her that question, and she was like, "Absolutely not. Um, no one has ever, uh, you know, in my family has utilized my knowledge to make." I just have this bags, image. You know? I have this image of Paul Pelosi in my head being like a total scumbag like an absolute dirt bag <laughs> and and nancy's like always disappointed in him dude do you see him look up this just search paul pelosi the first picture he doesn't look great it's his uh dui uh, dui oh uh, headshot he looks rough gosh i mean if you're paul pelosi you are bulletproof you can do anything you want Look what I just found. Paul, there's a Paul Pelosi Jr. Oh gosh, is this yep. This is their son. This actually might be another um Hunter Biden situation. He mm. kind of just looks like him. Man. Oh, are you looking at his Instagram? Anyways. No, I'm just on Google Images. Is are you on Instagram with him? Wow, he only has 887 followers on Instagram. <laughs> Bro, we could get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Tell send, us about. Be like send him Paul a DM. Jr., ask, bro, him about, ask him about. Spill his dad. Spill the beans about Nancy and Paul. Come on, yeah. <laughs> be like, how shit. many how many trades have you executed this year based off of what your mother knows? <laughs> Dude, that's amazing. That be, this is this looks this is definitely his Instagram. I mean, this is this is Dude. Hilarious. We might need to DM him. Did you okay on a quick tangent? Did you see how um, did you see how Vitalik was pretty much talking about something Sailor said on the NIA podcast, and then Trung comes in here and is like, "Hey, if you want to dispute what Sailor said on our podcast, feel free to you know feel free to come on. DMs are open. Did you see that? I saw that Trung was <laughs> Trung was caught in the middle of it. <laughs> Dude, if they get Vitalik on, that'd be so funny. And then I think the only next step after that is to have Satoshi come back and they have Satoshi on mm. the podcast. So anyways, we'll stay tuned for all of that. It wouldn't but, surprise me um, if they get, they get Vitalik on. Do you see Vitalik? Yeah, because yeah, Vitalik called Sailor a clown. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dude, they should was, get both of them on. I was like, Vitalik... You should learn to respect your elders, okay? <laughs> Show a little respect, huh? Sailor is just in a tough spot because everyone, I mean, he is such, a, it'd be one thing if he didn't hold so much Bitcoin and he was this passionate about it, but it, it is one of those things where it's like, bro, you hold so much Bitcoin, so it's in your self-interest, very much so, um, for you to be pushing all this stuff. So oh, I think that hurts him a little bit. Definitely talks. Yeah. I mean, you get to sort of like talk in your own book type of thing. Did you mm -hmm. see, did you see that um, he stepped down as CEO? Did you see that? No, I missed that too. Yeah. He, um, 
he stepped down as CEO, he's just going to, because right now he is, or previously he was chairman of the board as well as CEO. And he owned like 70% of the voting rights of the company. Um, yeah. He still, he still owns 70% and he's still going to be chairman of the board, but yeah. he's stepping, stepping back as CEO. I think they had kind of a That's bad good. quarter. Uh, from yeah but people are trying to spin it people are trying to spin it like like um he got fired and i'm like you know he fired himself so i don't know what you're talking about plus i feel like that day in and day out job of of that company is probably extremely stressful he probably just wants to i mean at this point he's just a he's a public figure you know Totally. Goes on, does that's exactly correct. Does talk shows. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no, I bet for the health of the company, it was like, I'm not focused enough on being CEO. Someone has to take this from me, even though I'll still sit in on big decision making and stuff. So, I mean, if I was him, I wouldn't want to be CEO for sure. Way too much work. Like, dude, I can just go. <laughs> sit on the beach and ramble for hours about Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Who would ever, dude, it's crazy. I was actually just talking to um, a family member who was pretty up in, uh, pretty high up in Kroger and she kind of, and she's still young and she kind of has a path to get up to that executive level. And, And I was just like, man, nothing about that to me, at least sounds appealing. And she actually said the same thing. She was like, yeah, I'm happy to say, I think she's like either VP or right below that, maybe at a direct level. And she's like, yeah, I'm happy to just live right here because all the pressure, all the backlash of all just stupid stuff, right? Where CEOs are coming out and having to apologize about just the dumbest stuff. Totally. So, totally. Yeah. Sounds miserable. It takes a certain type of person. I, mean, I think maybe as you get older in life, it kind of just naturally comes to you. But if you're like I mean, somebody's got to do it. Yeah, and I right. I just I do feel like <clears throat> I do I do feel like something happens to, to most people, you know, like between the ages of like forty and fifty five, where they just mm-hmm. like they just sort of like understand how the game works, and they it's like takes no effort for them to play it, sort of. Yeah. And so like they're sort of naturally inclined to fill a position, but yeah, if you're like a thirty year old, I mean, <clears throat> you're gonna. Of, you're gonna destroy your life if you try to take on a position like that. <laughs> and way too yeah. much stress. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think on the China front, I mean, we can also talk about the the economics real quick. I don't think we get we got too far into that. I mean, talk us through. Essentially, if we make enemies with with China, what does that do to the U.S. economy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, war war is bad for risk assets because everybody gets scared. So they dump all the risk assets. Um I mean, we obviously we still import a good amount of things from China, but there is an onshoring movement and I think if push came to shove the U.S. could be almost fully self-sufficient. It might be a bumpy road, right? Right? Like it might, it might take two or three years of some grit, some American grit. You know, like the Rosie the Riveter. Um, but uh, I think See, I be- disagree with that. I feel like there's no possible world. Just if you look at the labor, just the labor alone, how could you bring back manufacturing? Because you're that's what you're talking about, right? You're talking essentially. Yeah, I think the way it would have to work is that you would have to have extreme capital controls because you would have to start paying people very large amounts of money to do labor. Like you would have to pay um, construction workers like hundreds of thousands of dollars in salary because you have Mm -hmm. to create you have to create the incentive. And if you do that, I have no doubt in my mind that you will suddenly find a lot of people that want to work. I mean, hell, I'll go, I'll go bail hay if you pay me three hundred thousand dollars a year. By the way, have you ever bailed hay? 
<laughs> this is the most you know i have not i've not done that it is the hardest work known to man um really anyway yeah but where so, does that, okay but where's money like that come from right so I think, I think basically you have to induce capital controls and you basically rob all savings of everybody so you rob the savings so people you basically hijack everybody's 401ks and you're like this is ours now <laughs> uh so you do what they've been doing well not that part but the thing maybe with social security that's not totally out of the realm of possibilities like that is a very that is a lot more likely than people would like to admit you know well yeah because there's well and i mean again when you said well hold on let me let me organize my thoughts so that is because the only reason people could do that, governments could come and do that, is because you're trusting your value with a third party, right? They could go to Fidelity, they could go to totally. Charles Schwab and say, exactly. yeah. hand over hand over the rights to that property, and now that is ours, Correct. <clears throat> and it's for the greater good. So, and then, and then what that leads me to finally is, you know, you're your original point of risk assets being going down, which I agree with, but maybe current risk assets, some of them being recognized as what they truly are, which is a risk off asset um, and something that the government could not, could never come in and take as long as you hold your own keys. I am referring to Bitcoin, you know, like the things like that, like that it could, the China thing actually could, invoke even a faster pace um, in terms of people's understanding of what of what this property this new property actually is especially if what you're saying plays out and people and the government just starts coming in scooping in scooping out money in your bank account for the greater good they start taking equities that you own because we need to bring all the domestic production here versus how we've been doing it for how many ever years I think that that makes private property all the more, you know, it, it like to me, it, it, I don't even care about the supply of Bitcoin or anything. All I care about is can a government come in and take it um, or not based off of whatever austerity measures that they're, you know, that they're implementing. So anyways, that might be interesting to see if it, if Bitcoin holds as a risk asset, like a tech stock, or if it actually becomes more of a is risk off asset is that the correct term yeah so like gold for example if we were if world war three were to you know full full scale world war three were to break out i would expect the price of gold to increase because it's a risk off asset um it's a because it's the same it's the exact same thing that you're describing it's something that the government can't take um at least not without significant measures yeah um like so but, order. yeah i mean what i could see yeah i could see a future where like a dynamic where you could see a, a, just a massive crash in in risk assets i mean like eth goes to zero type of event although that probably wouldn't happen but it's you know like something like solana or avalanche and bitcoin would go right along with it and and bitcoin would go almost all the way to the bottom and then all of a sudden it would spike right back up and that would be the, the decoupling, right? Cause it could mm -hmm. be like under that dynamic, what could happen is um, you get the real players, like the, the, the people who are savvy to the way uh, the geopolitical forces work, particularly like sovereign wealth funds, mm -hmm. they will, they would wait for Bitcoin to drop as to as low as they possibly think it could at which point they they would buy it and uh and then and then it would be solidified as a risk off asset um that's just one potential outcome who knows you know yeah it'll be cuz um there's been a lot of all these geopolitics stories in the past year or so it feels like there's been a bitcoin angle um you know whether it's Canada or whether it's Ukraine, but for this one, there's a clear one. There's no, no clear Bitcoin story, at least one that I'm seeing. 
says the guy who hasn't been following um, news very closely the past week. But so it'd be it'll be interesting to see what the press action does. And the good thing is, I would say one of the best things is that China outlawed outlawed Bitcoin mining when they did and actually, you know, enforced it or whatever. And all those miners got out of got out of there. Because can you imagine if the amount of rate that was in China was still there and then were on all this conflict? I think I think for a lot of investors and a lot of, you know, holders, that would actually create quite a bit of concern that would be um that'd be fair. Absolutely. That's so, a really that's a really good point. That's an amazing point. Totally. Yeah. Totally agree. So we'll just keep an eye on this. I'm sure we'll have tons of uh, other conversations about this because I don't think this is this is going to resolve itself any anytime quickly. So yeah, do you want to talk about the oh go ahead. Great power struggles. So yeah. All right, let's um, talk about the ETH merge a little bit. Do you have time to do that? ETH merge, yes. We could talk about this. We talked about it, uh, I think, with like the last two episodes even. So it's mm-hmm. hot on the uh, in the culture right now. Um, I would like to... I would like to... What I really want to do is have a positive outlook on ETH. So I'm going to see if I can make myself do that. <laughs> Um, (laughs) that's what i mean i i want to try and like have an honest steel man counter argument so one thing just objectively regardless of belief systems objectively the eth merge will be successful because the ethereum network for lack of a better description has the crypto industry by the balls right they they kind of they have <clears throat> if eth were to fail crypto will also fail eth is too big to fail officially and i said crypto specifically I'm, i i again i think bitcoin is different than this bitcoin price action goes right along with it for at least for this foreseeable future. But my point is, is that objectively, the ETH merge is required to be successful, is a requirement. Um, <clears throat> if, if it were to fail, then all of crypto would probably fail with it. Um, in that capacity, it has a target on its back. You know, if I am, if we think back to, I don't know, if, if I am, somebody who doesn't want crypto to succeed and I have the wherewithal to make it to to attack it basically my attack point would be the eth merge that would be the point that I would mm. all out blitz um because that's when it's going to be there's going to be the most amount of risk involved um so so yeah how would you go about that would are you just talking about someone coming in and buying a bunch of it and trying to sell it? Or are you trying, are you talking about like security of the actual network, not just like price go down? Um, I guess there's, I could think of two potential attack vectors. There is just the threat vector of just an, an actual bug, like a, just some unaccounted software engineering thing, which is very unlikely to be clear, but, and that wouldn't require any sort of attacker. Um, but if I think about the attack vectors, I can think of two particularly, and you you probably see them used together. Um, one front would be the the price action. So, in some capacity, markets are an interesting beast. If you have a lot of capital, you can you can move markets in ways that seem counterintuitive so one attack vector would be to crash the price um and if you could find a way to do that then like i say this all the time like 99 percent of crypto interest is just what the price is right people that's all that's all really people care about so if you if you're able to attack that at the time of the merge 
then people will start to ask very big questions. Um, and then the second attack vector would be on the media front. So you know, I think the inverse of this is actually more likely, but if you somehow got all the major news outlets to take a stance sort of against Ethereum and against crypto, um, and maybe it sort of synchronizes with certain geopolitical events, like, I don't know, an invasion of Taiwan or something like that, uh, at which point, you know, maybe the the spin could be something like, okay, no more fun and games. Like we have, we have real existential threats here. Um, all you crypto bros need to get your shit together. We're done with this. So there could be, that's just one example. I don't, that, that, that just sort of stream of consciousness thoughts, but the point is the, the second front would be on the narrative front, right? So if you could somehow violate the narrative alongside of violating the price, then, um, then you could, could potentially crash it yeah mm. see i the thing is <clears throat> here's the thing that the crypto people don't want to admit from my vantage point you see with bitcoin there's like there's like cultural identity where people say this they have this there's this phrase this meme which is tiktok next block right which basically yeah. tra translates to, I don't give a shit what the market does. Okay. The market can do whatever it wants. We are building yeah. Bitcoin, right? That's not the case with Ethereum. Ethereum has to concern itself with the market. It's required to because it, for two reasons. First off is just price is the interesting thing. And so if price crashes then it loses interest. Um, but oh, and there's their their argument has always been more utility. Every ETH guy I've ever or or gal that I've ever talked to has been well. Ethereum has more utility. So yeah, there's the price, and then there's like, what can I do with this? I don't know if that narrative has died down at all, but I know that when I've had conversations with people who are you know really into Ethereum, that is yeah one of their main pieces. Is that's, that like that's Bitcoin can't do anything. That's true, but the the bigger argument I'm trying to make here is that they they are required to concern themselves with the with what the market does. They can't take this sort of like bullheaded um steel man perspective that Bitcoin has, which is that we don't care what the market does. They can't do that because Ethereum is so heavily integrated into the entire crypto market that if the price of ETH collapses then it it threatens everything else. Everything else is threatened. That's what I mean yeah. by Ethereum kind of has it has the crypto industry by the balls, right? Like, or maybe it's the inverse is true. You know, I don't know. Um, because like for mm -hmm. example, for example, I can give you a, a specific example. ETH, the asset, is used in a lot of DeFi activity. Um, so like lending protocols or liquidity pools or decentralized exchanges or derivative markets, um, ETH, the asset is all over the place. And so if its price were to tank, the fragility of the, of the market could, I don't know how, how fragile is the market. I don't know. Maybe you could steal my argument one way or the other, but, but sorry, that actually is regard, regardless of that. My point is, is that. ETH has to concern itself with the market um, yeah. price. And in that capacity, that sounds a lot like a security, in my opinion. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I want to know how many how many people out there are like my young youngest brother who has Ethereum that he bought during that, you know, during that bull run last year from fall until whenever, you know, whenever it stopped and then staked it and wants to sell it, but is not able to sell it right now because it is locked up in the staking thing. Like I want to, especially if we're just real quickly to bring it back to the China piece is like, if stuff plays out and risk off or sorry, risk on assets, you know, are not 
uh, desirable anymore. How much of the how many of the people who have ETH that is staked right now that they cannot sell, it's locked up, would exit that position the very first chance that they can once the merge is, you know, put through. And then what, you know, obviously that potentially could have really bad ramifications for the price. Yeah, man, a lot of moving pieces. I mean, my gosh, that seems like a tremendous risk, potential risk. Um, that's that's actually part of what. See, I wanted to be opt- optimistic, but I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I just naturally find myself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these uh these hedge fund guys, um, I'm thinking of one in particular. That I'm not gonna call out because I don't want to name names, but they, I think a lot of hedge funds actually did this trade, which was that they staked their ETH, and now they can't pull it out because yeah. they wanted that yield. Now they can't pull it out, and so now they're like, and the, the <laughs> they're at a negative. Like ETH needs to pump a lot more to get back in the green. So now it seems like what they're trying to do is like build this like narrative that will pump the price basically, which then they can exit their look and get exit liquidity once it becomes available. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a huge risk. I mean, I hold a bit of ether right now, but um, the thought crosses my mind all the time of, should I just go ahead and sell it? You know, especially when we had this latest run up where it got up to whatever it was, 15 or 1600. I don't know what it's at right now, but, um, but thankfully it's, well, for me, thankfully it's not a ton of ETH, so it's not a huge deal one way or another, but I can't imagine if I had, if I had it locked up right now, I'd be like really, you know, jumping at the bit to try to sell it. Right I, 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 I have this new thought jumping around my head, which is that mm-hmm. I think there is a possibility at some point in the future for Ethereum, sorry, ETH to experience a death spiral in the same way that Luna did. I think that Mm. that's within the realm of possibilities because ultimately people get so caught up in like, in this like mania of investing and it's kind of like, it's just like a temporary thing. Like it's like transitory thing and people kind of sober up at some point and they're like, oh, what is actually underlying this asset? And they're like, oh, there's nothing underlying it. And then it's like, well, but I can stake it, but then I could just get more of the thing that is doesn't have any underlying thing. Like, where does it end, right? So yeah, I don't know. I think that, um, I think that it's within the realm of possibility that you could see a death spiral at some point. Um, but um, the... The, the counter argument is that, see, so much of crypto is is built on ETH or at least like dependent upon the ETH price. So they're all, it's almost like this giant, it's like a giant equity for the entire industry. And, um, and it's like, if the price were to crash significantly, what you could see is a sort of like cartel of industry giants come together and basically backstop the price, right? Because they could stop that death spiral from happening because they were, they would think to themselves, well, like if ETH collapses in and of, in on itself, then everything's going away. Again, this all, this all goes back to like, I really feel like ETH kind of has, has control over the entire industry. But hmm. if if some alternative comes about, like Solana, Avalanche, I, th- I think these things will grow. Like I think that alternatives will come about. Ethereum becomes much less significant and important. Um, yeah. Talk <clears throat> me through the um, your back and forth with uh, data. Always, I, I like I had a chance to read through it, but um, I mean, it just sounds. Sounds like you guys went back and forth a little bit on your vote, but were there any anything any things that you kind of like learned from that exchange? We can link it if we want to in the show notes. Well, um, people can go find it on my Twitter. But um, 
I mean, the most, comp so like my argument with, uh, my argument with these alt layer ones or with smart block, smart contracting blockchains is that they are all bandwidth tokens. Like it's all the bandwidth is the value. And And by that, you mean the volume of transactions, right? Yeah, like the, the goal is to attract as much activity as possible. And yeah. you're replaced to Visa or MasterCard type of. Yeah, exactly. It's the same thing as like tech companies. Like there's sort of this like, I think there's almost like an unhealthy fixation of from tech companies over the past decade that the number one goal is to... um establish the network effect so your goal is to acquire as many users as possible that's all that matters and nothing else matters and um like this is a similar i see it similar in these in these smart contracting blockchains where that's what their objective is, is to acquire users because users pay fees and fees are real economic activity that is a real yeah. economic activity um but uh, I don't know. I think that that ultimately that's like a race to the bottom. Like I don't see. Also, I'll say I don't think it's within the realm of possibility that. So right now, ETH clearly has the most amount of activity on its chain. Mm -hmm. I think part of the people speculating on ETH is that that will continue as if like ETH has established the network effect. And once you establish the network effect, you're you're written in stone for the next thousand years. You're the you're the leader. And uh I I mean I think if you look at the dynamic of the rise of TikTok against Facebook, you'll see what I'm talking about. The network effects are not near as sticky as people attribute the value to them as. It's very easy. Again, something I've talked about in the past too is like over time users, digital users get more intelligent. They like figure out mm -hmm. how to use these things. It's almost like they're sort of, everybody's kind of becoming a developer in like some weird way. Um, and if you're a developer, you, you, there is no real switching costs. Like I can switch services, you know, no problem. Although we did switch yeah. the podcast service and that was a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> but my broader point they stands. They were learning. My, yeah, <laughs> it's part of the learning process. That's right. Um, my broader point stands, which is that like these network effects don't really hold any real value in my opinion, especially when like it's one thing for the, the user to be directly interfacing with the, the thing. Like with Facebook, users are directly interfacing with Facebook. And so Facebook has a brand value in their mind. Whereas like with these blockchains, these blockchains are mostly infrastructure. And so I don't suspect over time people to actually be interfacing directly with the blockchain. They're actually going to be direct. They interface with something like MetaMask or GM.XYZ or Coinbase or whatever. Like those are the things that they interface with. And so they have no allegiance whatsoever they don't care what the underlying infrastructure is it'd be like people saying like a consumer being like i'm going to use this service because they host on aws whereas this service hosts on azure who the mm. consumer doesn't give a shit about that right and so yeah, yeah the network of this is just my broader point which is the network effect is not near as valuable as people think especially whenever yeah. you you have to pay fees to participate <clears throat> in the network i mean Fees is just sort of like a gasoline on the fire because if the if in order to participate in the network, then you have to spend money, like you're not going to like that. That's going to be a, a, a uh, like an inverse network effect. You're going to go try to find the cheaper cheaper option, and that's actually much more of a that's a much greater incentive for users. the The financial angle is a much much more lethal anti-network effect than like even like the political stuff right like people hate facebook but they still kind of use it because they're like well everybody's kind of on facebook so what the fuck 
Um, <laughs> but like, yeah. if they had to pay money, if they had to like pay more increasing amounts of money to Facebook, they would be like, you know, it's just no longer worth it for me. Like, I'm just not going to do it. Right. Okay. Okay. We'll I, keep an eye on that. I mean, it's supposed to be in September, right? Uh, September, September yeah. I wasn't optimistic. What the heck? I was supposed to be optimistic. It's very, it's difficult. I mean, we'll just we'll just keep an eye on it. It's it's definitely plays a large role in like the broader the broader um market, but it's I think it is tough to know um timeline and how it'll all actually play out. So um, I think something we might need a table. Oh god, sorry. I wanna say, yeah, I want to say one more thing. <clears throat> I am like I'm on my soapbox here, sorry. Well, so we've been running kind of long, so we'll we'll wrap it up. But yeah. um, there is one thing that I'm genuinely optimistic about, like my my personal belief systems, which is like the concept of a smart contracting platform is is definitely something that is useful to civilization with with minimized counterparty risk. I think that that is something that is very useful to humans. My concern is that Ethereum is not that thing. And I don't even know if Solana or Avalanche is that thing, to be honest. I don't know if any blockchain is that thing, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So it might okay. be in your third category. Exactly. Of non-blockchain solutions. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it puts pretty much it put anything just think of anything that's a contract which is a lot of things you know so many things it replace <laughs> it replaces all of those things um whether it's the the attorney that you paid you know a couple grand to to write up a will or a trust all the way to even just signing contracts with um you know to buy a house all those kinds of things it's kind of crazy that all of that data could just be stored um digitally and be available and it actually make for um a lot more efficient markets can you imagine if like all of your assets and your debts were like all on a blockchain and then also there's a smart contract that automatically just distributed that those you know those pieces out to different parties depending on whatever the contract whatever your will said upon death Versus us having to go through all of this like court systems and to get all of that stuff sorted out. I mean, that'd be, that would be a much better world. So anyways. totally way more efficient. Yeah. And the world yeah. is going to, the world will naturally find that solution um, yeah. one way or the other. My argument, my sort of like cosmic brain argument here is that the solution that will be picked for that is the solution that is the cheapest the cheapest solution will win and a blockchain is too expensive. Lightning. Yeah. Lightning or maybe you just don't, you frankly don't need yeah. like a decentralized network for most of these things. You just need an, a, a third party. That's, that's um, enforced. See, most of these things are enforced by law too. So like, what is the point of having some sort of global blockchain when you're subjected to the, your local judicial system? It's really like it's really like the local the responsibility of the local judicial system to provide this service. Yeah, and the hardest part is that it's um once those assets have left the building, quote unquote, they're not they don't come back, right? Um, At blockchain. least with how things are right, yeah. how things are right now. So if you accidentally, if there was some bug or some hack in the smart contract that sent your, you know, the deed of your, you know, multi-million dollar house to the wrong address, right now, there's no, there's nothing that forces that address to send it back, you know, that kind of thing. Totally. So, yeah. Again, this is like, those are huge hurdles that we've got to get over. Yeah. Like, I don't think that, um. I think that most of the use cases for smart contracting benefit from a trusted third party. Like mm. the more optimal solution is to include a trusted third party, but that doesn't yeah. mean you can't codify it and automate it and make it digital. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, something that I I've 
just as I've had Twitter up, that looks like broke today. Um, we can talk a little bit more about maybe next time. Is it looks like Block uh, BlackRock is partnering up with Coinbase to uh, offer Bitcoin trading to their institutional clients. So it'll be kind of interesting for us to look more into that and see if there's any implications on that piece because we didn't talk a lot about Bitcoin. Um, but on the Bitcoin front, you know, to your point earlier, TikTok, next block, everything's still going uh, according to plan. So we're getting we're getting pretty close um, or we're coming up, I guess, on the next halvings. That'll be thing that we can start to talk about more. And it'll be real. I know that there's when well, we can get into this in another episode, but maybe even talking about those cycles and getting Kindle's take on are we going to see another run up or are we done with those kind of things? So we'll leave mm. that as a cliffhanger, maybe. Oh, yeah, that's I love it. Next time. Cool. That sounds good. All right. Well, we're signing off. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you all soon.